Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast about the television series Lost. I'm Kevin. He's Ben. Ben, how are we doing this week? I'm doing great. It's a three-day weekend, and uh, I'm making the most of it. Yeah, we're putting a couple of these in the in the can a little bit ahead of time, just because I know we'll have a couple Sundays later on in the summer. We'll be vacationing and stuff, but no rest for the wicked. We're not missing a week of this podcast, so <laughs> that's why we're, we're taking care of a few of these in a few days' time. But I'm actually really interested in these two episodes in particular because there's a lot of interesting stuff behind the scenes with the two of them. Before recording, you had mentioned to me uh, about an on-location thing. I did not get a chance to watch that, so maybe you can tell a, l- a little bit about it when we get there. Well, there's that. There's also some rumor and innuendo with the uh, the two actors. Oh, totally. Show, so yeah, we'll, I had that on my list to talk about. So we'll yeah. definitely talk a little bit about <laughs> that. And there's even some stuff here in the in our first episode, SOS, that I'm really excited to talk about, mostly because it is the first and I believe only Rosen Bernard flashback in the show. Yeah, Rosen Bernard flashback, and the the first episode that centers around characters who are not like the main main show cast. Yeah, and, and from my cool. research, this is apparently a flashback story they were planning to tell in the third season of Lost. Really? Um, but they also, during season two, the writers wanted to tell a story of, of one of the background characters in the show. And of course, Rose and Bernard are the most prominent and most mm-hmm. popular of the backstory. Mm-hmm. And fans are really interested in learning their backstory as well. Yeah. So well, fans love Rose and Bernard just in general. They've always liked them. They always, I mean, they, they did a good job of like setting up the. Uh, Rose waiting for Bernard thing and then paying it off and everything. And, you know, and, and I think of just like Sun and Jin, everybody gets behind the, the couple that wants to, that I guess overcomes adversity and maintains their, their love for one another. Yeah. The, the impression I got watching the, because they had a behind the scenes thing of this in the, in the extras as well, was that the fans were really clamoring for a Rose and Bernard mm-hmm. flashback, learning more about the characters. So mm-hmm. the writers between wanting to do this, this flashback to some background characters coupled with this fan response to Rose and Bernard led to this episode. Yeah. SOS. And there's two, and two such great actors too. I mean, L Scott Caldwell and Sam Anderson are both like, uh, you know, people that, that crop up frequently and, uh, they're always, I think, folks that elevate the scenes that they're in and the material that they're working with. So if, you know, they're a guest star on, you know, one of my other favorite shows or something that it's just always a treat to see them. So to have them get, you know, written some really good material for this episode was really nice. Yeah, I agree. And let's get into this episode. Do it. Written by Stephen Maeda and Leonard Dick, a pretty prominent pairing of writers on the show, is day 63 on the island. And we do have a previously on for this episode where we see the scene where Mr. Friendly tells Jack not to cross the line to the other survivors on the islands. We see the reveal of the map on the blast door. We see Henry telling Locke that he never entered the numbers on the computer when Locke was stuck in the blast door. And Jack and Kate finding the parachute full of Dharma food on the island. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And it doesn't really relate to the main stuff with Rose and Bernard here, but this is really important when it comes to the, the I guess, the B story of this. It's, it's not about the flashback characters, <laughs> yeah. but it's a pretty important story nonetheless. Yeah, it's funny how all the recap stuff has to do with things other than the two main characters. I think that goes to show how much is going on all at once on the show right now. Totally. So let's talk about the flashback first. We get the meet cute of Rose and Bernard here. <laughs> I don't really, they, it doesn't really say where they are, but you, it's, it's in this alley in a city. You, it's nighttime. There's a lot of snow on the ground. So it's outside of like a, a coffee shop Chicago. or a bar restaurant. I think it's New York. She said that she lived in the Bronx in like the very first episode. 
Oh, interesting. Okay, so yeah, fine. It's because they were they were talking about what the monster sounded like. All right, mystery solved. We can move on now. Mystery solved. <laughs> so Rose is in her car by herself. She's she's revving it, but her car is stuck in the snow. When Bernard sort of appears and he's in a suit, he offers to get her stuck out of the snow. And at first she turns him down, but then she accepts his help. And he's pushing the car, pushing the car, and eventually he falls down, but her car gets out and, and she has a, a laugh at his expense. But she gets out of the car to thank him. And there's these these kind of glances at each other, like maybe there's something uh-huh. going on there. And he's about and he gets in his car when Rose calls out to him, offering him to have a cup of coffee. And he seems very excited about this invitation. Later. They're at this really fancy restaurant. They're having a, a couple, it looks like coffees to me, next to like, there's this beautiful waterfall. It's, it's, it's one of these buildings that is just, you know, all the walls are windows and it's just a, a beautiful setting. And Bernard beckons over these two violinists. Then he gets down on one knee and he proposes to Rose. Uh, he says he's been a bachelor for 56 years and he knows they've only been dating for five months, but he knows he loves her because he knew it within the first five minutes. Really Aww. sweet, really beautiful line from Bernard. <laughs> but the mood changes drastically when Rose tells Bernard that she's sick and she's dying. Um, so Bernard, of course, gets up and, and has a seat. And she tells Bernard that she's been in remission for a few years, but now it's back and not going away. And she doesn't say it, but this is obviously the big C word that has plagued Rose. Right. And she says she only has about a year left of her life, maybe a little longer. And Bernard takes this all in, and then he tells her, you know, you haven't answered my question yet. And she says, are you sure? And he says, yes, he's sure. And Rose gives him a smile and says, yes. So Bernard's so in love that he doesn't care if it's just a year. He wants to spend that year with Rose. It's really a good scene. Uh, I think I like the, 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 the way it's written where, you know, she just kind of assumes that that's going to mean that his proposal is off and he doesn't even, he barely even gives it a second thought. You know, this this doesn't change my my wanting to marry you. Yes, it's true true love. And then the next flashback, we get the answer for what Rose and Bernard were doing in Australia. Yes, they're on their they're on their honeymoon in the outback driving around in a Jeep. And Rose still doesn't seem sure of it. She wanted their honeymoon on a beach. But Bernard actually has some ulterior motives. She drives her to this man named Isaac of Allura, who's a faith. Yeah. He was apparently recommended to him by several people back home once they learned about Rose's condition. And I've got I've got a couple things to say about the whole Aluru thing because it actually is a real place. It's a real place in Australia. It's a natural rock formation. I think it's sandstone. So you know, kind of like there's the you know the Grand Canyon and you know just different natural formations that draw people. It was known as Ayers Rock for a long time. But I think they started calling it Uluru uh, because they wanted to go back and use the Aboriginal name for it. There's a lot of sort of mysticism around it. I won't go into detail, but like there, there's definitely it's definitely one of those places where there's sort of like legends about it having supernatural powers and things like that. And this is all in real life, not even getting into Lost. First, also I noticed too. Did you notice Kevin the the kind of interesting thing here where I think most of us uh, probably assumed before this episode that because of their age that Rose and Bernard had been married for a long time and that they're, and yet they're on their honeymoon in Australia. That's what they're doing there. Yeah. Especially with the way Rose talks about Bernard. It's like they're an old married couple, but really right. they're, just, they're still a new married couple that who happens to just be a little older in age. Yeah. And R- Rose is not pleased that he did this because not only did she not get a say in a matter, but she's made peace with what's happening to her. Mm-hmm. But Bernard tells her, well, he hasn't made peace and he can't sit by and do nothing about it. He has to try. That's who he is. And he asks Rose if she'll see Isaac for him. 
And then that scene ends and flashes back to the island. Uh, but that speaks to Bernard's case of he has to try and do something to what's coming on later on the island. It almost has a little bit of shades of Jack's I have to fix things, but I don't think it's quite as selfish. If that makes no, sense. I don't think so either. I think it's a, I I would not be able to live with myself if I just sat and tried nothing with you knowing mm-hmm. you were sick for a year. So anyways, Rose does end up seeing Isaac. She goes into his house office, what have you, by herself. And Isaac has her sit down and, and she kind of thinks it's going to be like this voodoo hippy dippy thing. But he says what he does is he harnesses these energies to try to give to her. He does this and he closes his eyes and he puts his hands close to her face on her forehead. And his countenance turns to show that something like it, it feels like he saw something frightening or bad. Mm-hmm. And he tells Rose that he can't do anything for her. That gave me echoes of the scene with Claire and the psychic. Me too. Yes. Time. Very similar. And she's kind of resigned. So that's fine. But he tells her that, no, I, I can't do anything for you because there's all different types of energies out here. And here is not the right place. Mm-hmm. And Rose at this time, she's looking out the window where she sees Bernard and he's he's uh, giving flowers to this small girl who's on crutches and making her laugh. And he's smiling and all that. And Isaac offers to return Bernard's donation to him because he couldn't do anything. But Rose decides instead she's going to tell Bernard that Isaac fixed her. So he wants to give him the peace of mind saying that I saw him and uh, I'll be OK. Uh, ultimately, knowing that he didn't do anything. Mm hmm. And then the, the last flashback is actually something that goes back and forth with the island. I'll, I'll explain a little more when we get to there. Right. But it's of Rose and Bernard. They're sitting in the airport waiting for their call to go to the gate. Bernard isn't there at this time. Like he walks away to go do something or get something. Rose is reaching into her purse and one of her pill bottles falls out of her purse and hits the ground. And who's there to pick it up but John Locke in a wheelchair and hands it back to her. And again, that's something else that's explained in the island based on this flashback right. here. But that's how Rose and Bernard met. That's why they're in Australia. We have this interesting faith healer story with Rose having cancer and all this other stuff and uh, an interaction with Locke in the airport before the crash. So there's one quick thing that I want to go back to uh, as you're wrapping up the flashback here. The scene where Isaac is explaining you know, what his ability is to Rose. He says there are certain places with great energy, spots on the earth like the one we're above now. Perhaps the energy is geological or magnetic, or perhaps it's something else. And when possible, I harness this energy and give it to others. So we kind of exist in a world where, you know, if you're taking this at face value, then there is like sort of a, an ability of somebody to tap into that energy. And I just think that's worth kind of noting that there's this place like this in Australia And then right after that, he talks about how, you know, like there's another place that's right for you. Yeah. When he said magnetism, it definitely rang in my ears knowing what we know about the hatch. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely something similar going on. No mistakes on Lost, as they say. What's really sad, though, is this is actually a flashback that is taken from real life as L. Scott Caldwell's husband. Yes. They got married in, she said, during the pilot of Lost. And then he got really sick and he ended up passing away just a year later after being sick. So this is sort of a, a love letter, a, an homage to her late husband, where this is she she borrowed a lot of this for for the character of Rose. I did not realize it was that recent uh, uh, to the to the creation of that episode. She only did get about a year with him then. Right. So, it, I mean, it's, it's still a pretty fresh wound, I'm sure, yeah. for her as they're wow. doing this episode. But. I would love to see if there's like an interview out there with her or something like the, if she was ever interviewed about it 
obviously you never wish tragedy on anyone, but it's certainly in many, many cases for artists, people that contribute to creative works, that those tragedies fuel a lot of their, or informs a lot of their performance or the work that they do. That's really fascinating. I had no idea that it was that soon or that was that close to the episode itself. What, what else I discovered when researching this episode, and you may know this, but did you know that the Rose backstory about losing her husband and the other half of the plane, all this was originally intended for Kate? No, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So I guess in the initial plans for Lost, that Jack was going to die midway through the first episode. Well, yeah, I knew about that. Yeah, And then Kate would basically become the leader of the survivors. And that uh-huh. her backstory was that her husband went to the bathroom shortly before the plane split in midair. Uh-huh. And on the island, she would remain adamant that he was still alive. But of course, they, they change all their mind about Jack's death. And right, they right. Back for Kate, but they liked the backstory so much, they kept it and gave it to Rose and created Bernard as her husband. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I knew about, I mean, I think it's pretty common knowledge, the whole thing about how they were initially going to kill the doctor in the first episode and that they had even uh, approached Michael Keaton about it because it was just like a one episode guest star, essentially. But I did not realize it. And, and that then Kate would become the main character of the show. But I did not realize that they had that what eventually became Rose's plot integrated into Kate's. That's interesting. So we'll talk about the Rose and Bernard on Island story first. And what's happening here is Bernard is sort of annoyed at the other survivors because he feels as if everybody's <laughs> resigned to not being saved. Yeah. Especially now that they're getting food dropped in out of nowhere and people seem to be content and, and there's really been no effort made to leave since the, the raft was sent off and right. of course eventually destroyed. You know, there's there's little things like Hurley and Saeed messing with the radio, but nothing substantial. I think what sets him off or is the straw that breaks the camel's back is seeing Rose like make a kitchen on the beach essentially. Yeah, and and they have disagreements about this. Like he really wants to do something about it, but she just kind of wants to let things be. But he has Hurley get people together for this impromptu meeting. And I, I thought that was an interesting little touch here because, you know, the Tailies are still only a couple weeks on the island here. So he gets somebody trustworthy like Hurley to, to get mm-hmm. all these survivors together. So I thought that was a cool little touch there. Yeah, that's true. Bernard's idea is to build this massive SOS sign in the sand in case there's another plane or satellite flies over to drop off food or for another reason. So they can make absolutely sure that they know that somebody else is there. Rose is standing off listening to this and she wants to consult Jack, but Bernard doesn't think it's really necessary. I mean, he's not the president. He's just a doctor. And then Rose says Bernard is just a dentist, which actually causes some of the people to laugh. It, it's burn it's, it's yeah. shooting him down in front of all these people, which Jeez. which like Bernard doesn't really appreciate. Yeah. And, he pull, <laughs> and he pulls Rose to the side to talk about this. And all Rose really thinks Bernard is doing with his initiative is giving the people false hope. But Bernard excuses himself and he's he's going along with this plan. I like the SOS sign idea. I mean, I think if it was done right, it could have been a good idea. But uh, I also just have to say, I do understand Bernard's frustration. I think we tend to lose track of the fact that the show slowly turns from being, you know, about how do we get off this island to, I want to know all these deep mysteries or what's this crazy stuff going on on the island. And so everybody's sort of attention is focused on that and not on, okay, so yes, the one raft didn't work. Uh, let's build another one or something, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get where he's coming <laughs> from. And he has the extra incentive that he kind of explains later. Right. 
But he goes over to Mr. Echo and Charlie, who we saw a couple episodes ago just kind of constructing something, and we didn't know what the heck it is. And we find out that they're actually constructing a church mm-hmm. for the island. And so not only do they decline politely Bernard's uh, offer to help with the SOS sign, but this only further aggravates Bernard because it's yet another sign of contentment from the survivors to just stay put on the yeah, island. Yeah, we're, we're putting up a church now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like how Locke and or how uh, Echo and Charlie have become buddies too, because I feel like Charlie's just been kind of wandering from person to person to try to find somebody who will hang out with him. And not to mention it, he he has something to do to occupy his time rather than just concern himself with Aaron and Claire all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Especially when they told him, "Please just stay away." Yeah. So Bernard instructs whoever has agreed to help him, which is less than he wanted, to carry some of these big black rocks out of the jungle to the beach so they can construct these. 40 foot tall letters to spell out SOS. And he's going to mean he's going to map out the letters in the sand while they go get all the rocks. And people don't seem super thrilled with this idea of carrying heavy rocks back from, from the jungle to help. Right. They're making a mini Stonehenge. <laughs> and Sawyer, of course, declines Bernard's pleas to help in, in the only fashion that Sawyer can. <laughs> and Bernard tells Rose, it's her fault that people keep quitting on him. And he mentions that his group is windled down to about four helpers now. Rose says he simply just has this management problem. And this makes Bernard mad because he wants to know why, why Rose is mad at him for doing something. And Rose says, that's your problem. You always have to be doing something. You can't just let things be. And then Bernard says, if he just let things be, Rose wouldn't even be here, which is brutal to hear. It's brutal, but it also kind of doesn't make sense. I think that's kind of like maybe a little writing error because if they were on their honeymoon and seeing this faith healer, like, two months before they're on the island now. Didn't she say she had a year left? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline, but it's still brutal. It's yeah, it's brutal. And obviously I think set out of anger. Sure. Yeah. I, I, it's certainly not an irrational comment, but he's not thinking rationally and understandably Rose doesn't care much for the remark and she leaves him. <laughs> and then we see Bernard just chastising Jin, who seems to be the last man standing for these helpers, telling him that he's putting the rocks down incorrectly. There needs to be rows of three and he's doing whatever. And Bernard's treating the he's treating him like a field hand, basically. Mm-hmm. The one guy who's willing to help him out and Jin just quits. And now Bernard is left alone to take care of the sign. I did look up a couple of uh, Korean translations. As you know, I am I'm often want to do the first time they're all talking. Jin makes a remark about Bernard giving himself the easy job, which is, you know, to draw out the SOS in the sand while the rest of them have to go and haul rocks, which I thought was funny because that's what I was thinking. I don't know about you, but like when, when he's like, oh, yeah, he's gonna, so go start getting rocks and I'm going to do this, you know, dr- do the drawing. I'm thinking, yeah, you're giving yourself the easy job. That's what you're doing. So apparently Jin was thinking the same thing. I, and I thought the same thing. <laughs> it's very obvious what he's doing. Yeah. And then we get this this really great scene here where Locke has come up from the hatch to take a seat on the beach and Rose finds him there because that's her spot she has and she takes a seat beside him. She's, she's given him a hard time about sitting there. She asks why Locke is in the hatch and he says he's done with the hatch, but Rose believes he'll be back in there running around when his splint comes off because Locke has this big splint on his leg, this this makeshift one that Jack has made to help his leg heal from you know getting crushed by the hatch by the door. And Locke's like, oh, you know, it's... The doc says it's going to be four long weeks before that even comes off. But Rose tells Locke, we both know it won't take that long. And they give each other this knowing look. So Rose, of course, saw Locke in the airport in a wheelchair. And now he's here on the island able to walk. And so between the two of them, you have this mystical island appreciation society. 
I like it. Boone was the only other one who knew that. And and didn't Locke sort of volunteered that information to Boone, didn't he? I believe he did when they were going through woods and then he, you know, he, he died shortly after, I think, in the Beechcraft. So it's not like he could do much of that information. Right. So so that there's only two people ever to this point that have found out Locke's secret. Right. And this sort of it gets expanded upon. I think we're all kind of figuring out what's going on in Rose's head, but this gets expanded upon in our final scene with the two of them where Rose goes over to Bernard, who's moving all the rocks by himself to bring him supper. And Rose apologizes to Bernard and tells him that she lied about Isaac healing her. However, it doesn't mean she is not healed. And she tells him that when you're, when you're sick, you have this feeling inside of you, like something doesn't belong. And after the crash on this Island, that thing is not inside me anymore. And at first she thought it was just shock from the crash, but it wasn't. It's this place. It's the island. And Bernard himself puts it together that Rose feels that if she leaves the island, she may be sick again. And then he says, if you can't leave, then neither can I. And tells her they won't ever leave and gives her this big hug and kiss. So Rose firmly believes this island has mystical powers. She's she's cancer free as long as she is there. And Bernard now understands why she's content to stay on the island and not going to, to try to get them rescued and is fine to stay on the island with her now. This begs a question for me is, do you think that Locke also believes that if he leave, if he leaves the island, that he'll lose the use of his legs again? I believe so. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's just that, but it's a pretty big reason. I, I even yeah. though it's one of those things where he doesn't have to say it out loud, but I right. definitely, especially when he was so adverse to using a wheelchair when his leg got crushed. Although in certain certain circumstances, it would be easier than crutches. He he's opting for right. crutches. Instead. Well, that and then you go back to season one where there was that there were like those moments where he started briefly losing use of his legs again. Uh, I think that like that was what led to Boone getting killed was that Lot couldn't go up there himself because he had lost use of his legs again. That's right. That would have kept me sort of in a constant state of like oh, I'm on borrowed time with these legs. Like at any minute they could give out again. And I think that would probably, from even a broader perspective, I'd be thinking, yeah, if I leave this island, this thing that I've gotten back is not coming back. Right. And it, he kind of explains that the that Boone was a sacrifice to the island. And I, right. I, I think the you read between the lines where that sacrifice was made and then he was able to walk again after it. So speaking yeah. of Locke, we get to our other story with the hatch and all the other stuff going on here. Lynn Locke's very preoccupied trying to remember the blast door map from memory and he's drawing it on this piece of paper and mm-hmm. all these different drafts of it. And he gets so sucked into this that he almost forgets to push the button. He's sitting at the computer. The, the alarms are going off to the one minute countdown. And Jack thankfully reminds him, he comes to the room. He's like, uh, you're going to get that. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he pushes it and goes back to, to trying to remember this blast war as best he can. It's been two days since Henry had any food or water and he still won't talk. And Jack tells Anna Lucia that he's tired of waiting. So he goes into the armory and he's there to change the dressing on Henry's shoulder, warning Henry not to try anything as he's doing so. And he tells Henry as he's changing it, he's like, you know, that line about, you know, what your plan would be if you were one of the others to go out there and and set a trap for us and then try to make a trade. Well, that sounds like a really good idea. And I'm going to go back out there and I'm going to see if I can make a trade for uh, he's going to see if he can trade Henry for Walt and get him back. And Jack starts to walk away and Henry gives like a little bit of a chuckle. And then he tells Jack, they'll never give him Walt. Yeah. It kind of makes you wonder if it's like a thing of, uh, he knows that they absolutely will not negotiate or if there's something really specific to Walt 
that that like uh, he's so special because that's what Mr. Friendly said. You know, Walt's fine. He's a very special boy. The only time we see any children with them are ones that we know have been kidnapped. Like we saw when Jin and Echo were watching the footsteps or watching the feet walk through the jungle from behind the bush. We know that the, that the little kid one was one of the kids that was taken from the tail section because he had the little teddy bear. Right. Yeah, definitely. So Jack's packing up this backpack despite what, what Henry told him. He's still going out to make an attempt. Ana Lucia offers to come with him, but he he gives this glance at Locke, who's still working on a map, and says that she needs to stay here. So I guess he he's afraid that Locke may forget to push the button. But again, if Jack really doesn't think nothing's going to happen with the button not being pressed, why is he so concerned? Why is he worried about, about it? <laughs> so Good I thought point. that was an interesting scene. Good point. Anyways, she, she gives Jack her gun and tells Jack to not go out in the jungle alone. And so Jack walks up to Kate and Sawyer, who are gathering some mussels in the in the sand. Jack invites Kate to come with him. Sawyer's like, oh, I think you might need a gun for that or something. And he doesn't like learning that Jack has a gun because he has Ana Lucia's gun and that he does not need Sawyer's assistance. <laughs> not happy to hear this. Yeah. So back in the hatchlock is still working on his map drawings and he wants to go see Henry. But Ana Lucia doesn't want to because the gun is still with Jack. So they don't have any go any guns, but she says that if he wants to talk to Henry, he can just do so through the door. So he does. And he's asking Henry, did you enter the numbers or did you not? And he says that, you know, he's pounding on the door and yelling at him. And we see inside the armory that Henry is smiling. So this is exactly what. Oh he my God. That smile. <laughs> Michael Emerson. So sinister with his look. I, honestly, I hate to say it because I love the character of Locke so much, but Locke at this point, these last couple episodes and now is like pathetic in my opinion. Like he is playing into Fenry's hands so completely in getting emotionally manipulated. It's just, it's really sad. It is. It's, it's, it's uncharacteristic of Locke, but he's so in his own world that he's letting all this gets him. And he, he just needs to know is the button real yeah. or is it not? Well, what's happening is his faith is getting questioned and everything, you know, again, I, I I've said it before uh, last uh, a couple episodes ago where, you know, it all goes back to that scene in the first episode of the season when he looks up into the sky and he screams, what am I supposed to do? It's like he got the hatch open and he thought that was his destiny. But now what? You know, he doesn't know. And so these, you know, someone like Fenry who can, you know, manipulate that can just cause a level of emotional strife in him that's going to work towards Fenry's advantage. That's something I didn't even consider that if the button turns out to be a hoax and this is all maybe it is just some human experiment or something, then it does sort of shatter his faith. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like, well, so it's an unknown right now because he's got all these people telling him Jack is insisting. He's like, it's, it's just a joke. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. You know, Fenry's saying I didn't push the button. Nothing happened. He needs some reassurance that, that it's a real thing. Right. And so we go back to Kate and Jack walking through the jungle and Kate tells Jack she's flattered. Jack shows her over Sawyer. Jack says, well, you know, I asked Saeed first and he said no. And I only asked you because the, the others had you kidnapped and gave you back. So they don't want you. They obviously don't want you. Maybe next time just say no problem, Jack. Right? Just kind of be nice. Yeah, give, give, give her that one. Come on. <laughs> uh, so as they're walking, Kate sees this baby doll in the jungle and she goes to pick it up. But Jack realizes it's a trap and goes to save her. But unfortunately, a trap ends up capturing both of them. This is a big jader bait as they're in this. Right. They're face to face, pressed up against each other in this net. And what's great is after they get captured, Kate just weakly tells Jack, "Sorry, 
<laughs> I think that overall this scene, though, a nice little change up because there has been a lot of negativity between these two, two characters and some like uncomfortable scenes this season. So it's nice to see something that was a little more lighthearted with them in the net here. Yes, I agree. As they're in the trap, they realize it's not an other's trap, but it's a Rousseau trap because they recognize the netting is something that Rousseau used to use. So Kate has to carefully pull the gun out of Jack's back pocket so we get her hand kind of going on his backside, finding the gun. She makes an attempt to shoot the rope down and she misses. So Jack grabs the gun and he hits it and they fall down and Kate lands on top of Jack. So it's a good scene, but definitely some Jader baiting here. Definitely. But it's not as egregious as some other stuff that we've seen with the two of them or even Sawyer and Kate in the past. Well, and I would even prefer this like relationship baiting over like the obvious like fan service, like, you know, Kate in her underwear, you know, bathing in the ocean like they did in the first season and stuff like that. I'd either take some of this just as long as it's done well and it's kind of tongue in cheek. I don't mind this stuff so much. Yeah, it's at least that's this is germane to the plot of the show as opposed to just let's have Sawyer and Kate in their underwear swimming by this waterfall. And I guess they'll happen to find this briefcase. Yeah. So we're still in the jungle and it begins to rain. Always a positive sign. And Jack asked Kate what she meant when she told them in the trap that the others were sophisticated. And Kate tells Jack about herself and Claire finding another hatch when they went out to the, the jungle with Rousseau and what was inside all of it. And of course, Jack ears kind of perk up when she says it was like this medicine station, but she's like, there's nothing there you can use that's ransacked. But she mentions the costumes and the fake beard and all this other stuff. And Jack's like, well, when were you going to tell me about this? And Kate said, when you decide to let me back into the club. So Kate was out of the felt she was out of the loop and decided not to share this with Jack. And yeah, he doesn't have much of a leg to stand on here, considering it's been like at least a week or more that basically he and John kept from the entire survivors that they had one of the others or someone that they suspected and that's know, exactly what kate says on the armory yeah oh yeah that's right yeah and that, that kate says exactly that and then before that can get expounded on they jack realizes they're back to where they were when they initially met mr friendly and they were surrounded by the others but it's it's daytime so it looks a lot different it's the it's the same place that that uh henry had led saeed on lucia and Charlie, too, a couple episodes ago with uh, the map. Mm -hmm. In my mind, it's the same, but maybe it's not in the show. Okay. Some, someone can write to us at LostPod on Twitter or LostPodQuestions at gmail.com and call me an idiot if they want. <laughs> back in the hatch, Locke is back from the beach, so this takes place after the scene with himself and Rose. Ana Lucia tells Locke that she pushed his button for him, and Locke says mm -hmm. it's not his button. So this is definitely a shift from couple episodes ago where Locke was adamant that it, he said it was his hatch. Yeah, yeah that's now, true. Yeah. He's trying to not take ownership of the button anymore, mm -hmm. which I found interesting. And he goes back to, to trying to draw the blast door map. Then we get this montage on the beach of some stuff that's going on. We see Charlie and Echo are building their church. We see Jin is rubbing Sun's stomach, so a, a slight reminder that Sun is pregnant. Claire is with Aaron. Hurley is making shadow puppets for Libby. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. It's uh, She seems really easily amused by the shadow puppets. I know. Um, it's a really starved for entertainment. Sawyer's breaking up some muscles to eat him, and then Vincent walks over, and Sawyer just sort of reluctantly feeds one to him. Like He has this look on his face like, all right, fine, and gives him one. And then I kind of got the impression that he was thinking that because all the rest of the scenes were of couples. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, he's jealous that Jack is off with Kate. Yes. So his 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 buddy is is Vincent the dog. 
Good point. I, yeah, I didn't piece that together, but that's funny. And then, of course, our, our main couple of the story, Rose and Bernard, are all curled up together. So they've made their amends and they're they're happy with their island life together now. Mm-hmm. Then we go back to Jack and Kate in the jungle. And now it's nighttime. And as they're walking, Kate tells Jack she's sorry she kissed him so many episodes ago. And Jack says he's not sorry. And Kate kind of gives him a look. But suddenly somebody with a torch begins walking towards them. And we think this is one of the others. But the person falls down. Jack and Kate help the person to their feet. And guess what? It's Michael. And that's the end of the episode. No waltz. He has a torch, which which is, of course, a, a trademark of the others. And now he's he's coming back to for who knows what reason. But we end with this big thing that Michael, after being absent for, gosh, probably eight weeks or so, is now back here. Yeah, it, it was eight episodes. All right. So it's a big episode. deal to have a regular gone for a third of a season. And there's so much going on, just like we were talking about how so much of the the, the recap is like all these different scenes that of of the this of so many different threads happening at once that uh, you you can lose track of a, of a character that way. I also wanted to point out here this uh, I didn't get to mention it when you uh, did the scene, but uh, this is the first canonical mention of Frogert. Yeah, when it's when. Bernard is telling Hurley, you know, get get Sun and Jin and this, and he's listing off a bunch of people to get, and he mentions Frogert as one of the people. So Frogert uh, is mentioned in name only. This becomes like a, a you know, a, a, a Scott Steve thing, one of those sort of like running jokes about the background people that you never get to know. So I thought that was fun. It is fun. What did you think of the episode overall? Uh, I really liked it. It's a good, it's a great character episode. It's, um, I mean, definitely a lot of mythology arc stuff moves along in it. I think primarily the the Rose and Bernard stuff makes it a memorable and unique episode for sure. What about you? I agree completely. It's it's a perfect balance of character stuff and mythology stuff, I Mm -hmm. think. And I think the Rose and Bernard backstory is incredibly interesting. I really like that Rose and Locke have this understanding and a connection now of this island's powers and that they're not alone in their own thoughts and Locke can sort of speak to somebody about this. Now yeah. that, now we have Michael back, so that adds a whole another wrench into the story that maybe for some people was losing a little bit of steam because, you know, how much can you really do with just Henry and the Hatch there outside of the mind games he's already performing? But right. now this is going to add a little more to the story here, and it's, it's, it's all leading up to the end of the season, and it, it's all very exciting. Well, certainly it won't be long before we hear someone screaming for Walt probably, and, you know, so things to look forward to. Not long at all. <laughs> so what's your favorite scene of this episode? Ah, uh, my favorite scene it sounded like you liked it quite a bit too, was the conversation between Rose and Locke, where she alludes to the fact that she knows that he was in a wheelchair before the island. I like the way that it was framed and the way that it was acted and even had some of that good lost sort of mysterious music on it. I just I really enjoyed that scene. Me too, though I actually like the scene where Rose explained to Bernard how the island healed her, and that mm-hmm. was just a, a super sweet, very nice moment. And yeah. Just Bernard's change of heart after all the the damage he's done. This episode was really kind. Yeah. How about quote? All right. My quote is actually three lines, three people. I started with Echo saying people are saved in different ways, brother, which I just think is kind of a cool quote. But then immediately following that, you get the comedic of uh, a reaction of, I think I liked you better when you just hit people with your stick. (laughs) And then on top of that, Charlie says, I like you just the way you are. 
it's like this nice uh, philosophical comment, and then they they lay a couple of one-liners on top of it. I thought it was pretty funny. I Bernard's one-liner to Mr. Echo is my quote, but I is had, it? but I also had the quote he had at the very beginning where Bernard walks over to Mr. Echo and says, "You bunk with the guy for forty-eight days, and now he doesn't call her right." Yeah, that's a good one too. Really cool. <laughs> How about your asshole idiot? Okay, my asshole idiot was Jin. Because of ditching Bernard on the SOS sign. Now, yes, Bernard was being kind of a jerk, but I'm thinking of all the people on the island right now, he should understand the importance of this to Bernard and should really sort of be sharing that sense of importance, having a wife right there. And then on top of that, you know, like this is the guy who went on the raft and with the explicit state of re- stated reason of trying to get his wife rescued, right? Well, that didn't work out. And then, you know, like Bernard said, it seems like everybody's just sort of settling in now. So you would think that Jin would be the guy who would be totally on board with anything that could get them rescued, especially now on top of everything else. She, his son is is carrying his child. So it's like even more motivation to get off the island. So I, I thought that, yeah, even if Bernard was a little jerkish about it, that Jin shouldn't have ditched it so quickly. But that's what I had. I had Bernard, man. I think a little jerk is just giving him a lot of credit for the way he was treating not just Jin, but everybody else who he had recruited for for help, especially mostly admonishing them for getting yeah. lazy or complacent and then getting this help. It, it was bad management, as Rose put it. It was. You think I'm sugarcoating it a little too much? I, I think so. <laughs> I, I, I think Bernard really deserves it for this one. And well, the thing is, too, is with Jin, maybe he'll come back to it a couple of days later or, or something like that. But in that moment, I don't blame him for quitting at all. Okay. We can land on opposite sides of the coin with that one. For sure. Yeah. So right. uh, there's a couple numbers here. Bernard, when he goes back to Rosie, said, first, I had 15 people willing to help me. Now I'm only down to four. So there's two numbers in one line. And then Jack told Locke that he had four weeks before he could get out of his splint. Those are the numbers that I found. And we got some Sawyer nicknames. Yeah, calls Jack Doctor Giggles, and then this one I had to look up. He called Bernard Norma Ray. Did you know what this was? I did. It's a it's a classic Sally Field movie. Yeah, I'd I never think it heard might even it. be the one that she won an award for. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, but was, the one where the her famous award thing where she says, "You like me? You really like me?" I thought that was another movie. It might have been. It might have been Steel Magnolias. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, it's like a classic uh, union, like a uh, strike movie. Yeah. I, I did not notice any other nicknames besides Dr. Giggles and Norma Ray. Did you? No, that was uh, that was all I got. So the, why don't you take us into books and music? Yeah, books and music. Okay, so we did not have any books this episode, but we do have some music. There is a track on the season two soundtrack just called Rosen Bernard, and I think it is an excellent track. It's actually, for me, one of the highlights of the season two soundtrack. In this episode, it plays when Rose confesses to Bernard that she lied about Isaac getting rid of her cancer and then just sort of played through that whole scene of her explaining that her cancer is gone and it's because of the island and them deciding to stay on the island together. I mean, Giacchino uses a lot of tracks where something will start out on piano and then sort of segue into string instruments as it builds. Rose and Barnard sort of have a theme where when the two of them are together and talking like that, those certain musical cues will come up and that's basically what this is. And it's a, it's a great, it's a great track. I really enjoy it for uh, incidental music. There is an Otis Redding song called These Arms of Mine that's actually used twice in the episode. It's first in Rose's car in the beginning, the first flashback, 
And then it also happens to be playing on the Swan record player. And of course, then it bleeds into the montage that we get that you described. And then what's really interesting that happens is that Giacchino then takes the melody of that classic song and leads it into the orchestral soundtrack as the music starts to fade. I mean, I don't know if that involved like getting certain rights to do something, but, and I can only think of one other time that I know of where they've done that in the show that happens in season three. So we're not there yet. And then there's one last piece of music that is really baffling to me. I don't know if you remember Kevin, but back in uh, season one, Hurley was listening to some like a rap or hip hop song or something on his headphones while he was walking across the Island to try to find Rousseau. And like, nobody knew where that song came from. I do, yeah and, yeah, and it was totally made up for the show. It was made up for the show. There's a piece of music that sounds kind of a little bit like, you know, 60s-ish slow dance or something that's playing on the record player in the Swan Station. I couldn't find mention of it anywhere. It's instrumental, so there's no lyrics. And I also noticed that it is the same music that plays on, I think, disc four main menu of season two where in disc four the main menu is like the pictures inside the swan station and so that makes me wonder if maybe that was composed for the show even though they have it playing on the record player so i unfortunately i don't have any information on that one Hmm. so yeah some weird things with the soundtrack but like i say rosen bernard great track from the season two soundtrack all right then anything else you want to say about sos before we move on to your episode this week (laughs) I did note here there was a for for historians uh, who might be interested, there was a recap episode in between these two. Uh, And so this was sort of, I guess, the last recap as they were sort of barreling down towards the last few episodes of season two called Lost the Reckoning. So two for the road and everything else we're going to talk about through season two was all aired in May. So they're entering sweeps month. And so this is a good catch up to. Okay. I was wondering about that because it didn't mention that in the thing that I read about it, that there was like a gap, but usually there are. And that's, that's one of the things we'll talk about this more when we get to season three, but that is something that people complained about a lot. Like the frequent uh, gaps in airing of new episodes of lost uh, that led to some interesting decisions of how they would air the show uh, in season three and beyond to try to solve that problem. Right. Um, so that makes sense. Cause I knew about a lot of that frustration. Okay. So we are now going to season two, episode 22 for the road. This is day 63 and 64 on the Island for our recap. We know right away. This is going to be an Ana Lucia episode because we see the scene where she murders Jason in a parking lot We see her speech to Michael about the others, which I mentioned at the time they use again and again and again because it very well encapsulates how uh, terrified they are of the others. We see a scene where Michael is holding Jack at gunpoint and leaving to go find Walt on his own. Jack telling Fenry that he's going to try to do the exchange. That's from last episode. And then the very last thing from the last episode of Jack and Kate finding Michael in the jungle. And he is unconscious when he finds him. You said he was holding a torch, but didn't he just kind of like fall over and then he was unconscious? Yeah, he's very weak. Very weak. So pretty much a direct continuation from the previous episode. But we will get to that after we do the flashback here. The flashback is actually also a direct continuation from the previous Ana Lucia flashback. You know, sometimes you get these where it's like picks up right where another one left off. But this is literally like uh, I would say what like maybe a week or or less, maybe even a couple couple days after. Oh no, gosh, it was the next day, Kevin. Because the very first scene we have 
Anna Lucia, she's on the police force. She's She pulls into the police car parking lot. Her mom slash captain proceeds to interrogate her about her whereabouts the night before. And she basically takes her to see Jason's dead body and explains that she thinks Anna Lucia did it. Like, I, I actually like this scene because they didn't beat around the bush at all. You know, captain was just like, you killed this man, you know, <laughs> like, it's not bullshit. So Anna Lucia is, doesn't immediately admit to anything, but her mom puts it together. She's like, you, refi- you refuse to file charges against this guy. And then he shows up dead. And she says, you know, Anna Lucia, you're going to need my help. I guess, to sort of figure out a way to either minimize what kind of consequences she's going to have to face or something. And then Anna Lucia quits. The next scene we have, Anna Lucia is now a TSA agent at LAX. So she's wanding people. Anna Lucia stops by the airport bar after work and gets her signature drink, which is a tequila tonic. Uh, And Christian Shepard is there. I don't know. This felt like hitting on her to me, but maybe in like a creepy old man way. Like, he was asking her some pretty personal questions. Yeah, and, they, and, it, and it gets all the more creepy here in a second. Right. So he's saying how – he says, you you wanded me. How does one uh, get into wanding? And she said that she stopped being a cop. And he said, that's funny because I just stopped being a doctor. And he gives a little overview of the situation with Jack. Of course, he doesn't mention Jack's name or anything, but basically explains that, you know, his, his son ratted on him uh, for – Uh, operating while he was drinking. Anna Lucia says that she doesn't think parents and children should work together, which is funny because that kind of makes you think about how they were in very similar situations, uh, she and Jack anyway. Uh, All of a sudden, Christian invites her to come to Sydney, Australia with him. So we know from previous flashbacks, obviously that's why Jack was in Australia was he was trying to find his father. We've seen Christian Shepard was on like a total bender in this bar where Sawyer ran into him. And then now we're seeing, I guess he's getting ready to leave for Sydney. So timeline wise, this is before those two times that we, we see him, but he wants her to go with him and basically says that fate put them together so that they can help each other out and that he needs protection or a bodyguard, which would be a good job for someone who used to be a cop. I guess she agrees to go. I don't think she ever explicitly says like in the show, like in the scene that she's going to go, but obviously that's what happens. And they agree to call each other by different names, Tom and Sarah, which is worth noting because Sarah is Jack's wife's name. That creeped me out so badly. Yeah, that did. I mean, you know, when, cause he gave her the name Sarah. Yeah. So if, if I am to understand and I'm, and I'm certainly playing psychologist here, this woman who I feel like he's sitting on to a certain extent names her after his son's wife's name. Mm-hmm. That says a lot of, of something or other in, in that naming. Yeah. No accident. It really, it really crawled under my skin when he said that name. It's definitely not a good look for Christian Shepard. The whole thing is really not a good look. I just, the whole idea of just randomly inviting a woman at a bar to go to Sydney, Australia with you under the auspice that you need protection is kind of strange, but He's probably completely hammered the whole time they're having this conversation because we know Christian Shepard. So I thought that, you know, it might have added a little more to the realism of that situation if for Ana Lucia to actually accept that offer. If it was something like he offered her a ton of money to do it or something like this is a this is a, like I'm giving you a job. I'm offering you like a job or she's like, oh, you know, I've got a weekend off. You're only going to be a couple of days and I can pick up some extra money for 
being like somebody's bodyguard or something. I don't know. It's still just a weird scenario, no matter how you slice it, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Part of me thought she was almost running away from the cops, too, maybe. Yeah, I don't know if she was running away from the cops as in like she thought she was going to get caught and arrested and charged with murder, but she definitely was running away from the whole situation, which is what she talks to her mother about at the end of the flashback. So, yeah. I mean, that is, I guess that's true. Under that emotional influence, it might make her more prone to accept this idea that on its face is crazy, running off with a complete stranger to Sydney. But so our next scene, we move a little bit ahead and uh, she wakes up in the middle of the night. And she's in a hotel room. Where is she in the world? She's in Sydney, Australia. And how do we know, Kevin? Because you see the damn building in the background. (laughs) Because every hotel in Australia is centered in a big circle around the Sydney Opera House in the Land of Lost. So we know we're in Australia. We see that Opera House. She's drinking liquor from a bottle. So obviously uh, she's been, uh, I don't know, I guess partying in the non-traditional sense and just getting wasted. Christian knocks on her hotel room door. And so that's kind of, you know, there was that brief moment there where you're like, are they in the same hotel room together? I really hope not. Uh, and then, so I guess it's enough that that he's not actually in the same hotel room. So whether or not he was trying to get any action, he did not. And he's, he's completely drunk and it's the middle of the night. And he says, it's time for your protection duty. We're going right now which is kind of surprising to her because it's the middle of the night and apparently they've been there for four days getting drunk. So they pull up to this suburban house. It's pouring rain, our favorite weather pattern in Lost. Christian gets out. Ana Lucia stays in the car and she watches. So we kind of watch from her perspective. He's walking up to the door. We can't hear very well because again, it's uh, from we're watching from the car, but knocks on the door. He starts this argument with a blonde haired woman who comes to the door And we hear him saying that he wants to see his daughter and that he has every right to see her. And then things start to get, take a turn for the worse. They start to get physical because Christian is trying to force his way into the house, trying to push past this woman and yelling and shouting louder. And so then Anna Lucia decides to get out of the car and intervene, you know, grabs him, pulls him back. He's still yelling and uh, about wanting to see his daughter, but she pulls him back away from the house. You know, I guess in all reality, it's a good thing she was there. You know, I mean, who knows how that would have gone down differently. He might have ended up in jail or something. I mean, although, I mean, he ends up dead, but still. He protects him from himself and her well, and the woman he's accosting. Right. Well, that makes me kind of wonder, was he, did he want her there just as much to keep himself under control as anybody who might have, you know, wished him harm? <laughs> I don't know. We'll never know. But they're driving the next morning and Anna Lucia asks about the woman, you know, who's that woman? What was going on? Christian says uh, that she's a long story. Anna Lucia says, well, she says, my name's Anna Lucia. You know, they've been calling each other Tom and Sarah the whole time. And he says, well, I'm still Tom. And she says, what you are is pathetic. And he says that we're both, they're both in Australia for the same reasons that they're running from something. They pull up outside a bar and Christian invites her to go in with him and be pathetic together, but she refuses. And she kind of says it, she says no in this really emphatic way that kind of makes me feel like she's sort of come to a, like a turning point where she kind of realizes how low things have gotten for her. And she's like, you know, I'm, I'm pulling the plug on this. We're done. So he gets out of the car and he's sort of on his own at that point on the way out of the car, Christian hits somebody with the car door and it is Sawyer. So we get another Sawyer spotting in Sydney where we've also seen him. Let's see. Boone has seen him once in the other Sawyer flashback. He ran into Christian Shepard in the bar, which is about to happen in like two minutes. And then, 
not in there, not in Australia, but he did see uh, Kate's mom at the diner. Right. She tries to convince him to come back and get out of Sydney and go back, but he won't. So he, she leaves him at the bar. The last scene we have with Anna Lucia is she's at the Sydney airport and we see her watching the Jack scene where he's trying to convince the airline staff to let him bring the coffin on board. That's actually works out well timing wise, timeline wise too, because when we go back to season one finale and Jack and Anna Lucia first meet at the bar, she talks about how she overheard and saw that whole scene. And that was kind of what gets their conversation. That's right. So that's kind of a nice connection there. They're, they're putting all those pieces together. The thing that is added to this scene that's kind of neat is that hearing that conversation with Jack talking about his father, of course, she's having no idea that it's the man that she went to Australia with, kind of inspires her to call her own parents. She calls her mom and she says that, you know, she admits that she was in Sydney because she was trying to get away from her mistake, but that she wants to come home. And her mom says, yeah, come home and I'll be I'll be waiting for you at the airport when you get there. But of course, we know that is never to be. And that is the end of the Anna Lucia flashback. What's your opinion on this flashback, Kevin? Well, it's light years better than the previous Anna Lucia flashback. <laughs> I, re- I really liked it. I mean, creep factor aside, I I, I kind of like the idea of, of her and Christian sort of pairing up and seeing the self-destruction of Christian kind of realize where she is in her life and inspires mm-hmm. her to be better and go back. So I like, I like all that stuff and how it, how it all ties together. And I think this yeah. is, I feel way better about Anna Lucy after this flashback night and after the first one. Yeah. I mean, I do too. I mean, it, it doesn't erase the fact that she murdered a guy in cold blood, but then he, she's not the only character that's done that on this show. I mean, Sawyer has too. And we, you know, we managed to find our uh, find a way to like him on the island and believe in the possibility of his redemption. And so, you know, that's the thing about Anna Lucia that I think with the fandom kind of always bothered me because I feel like they held the character to a different standard than other characters. And I don't know why. I don't I don't think it has I'm say emphatically, I don't think it has anything to do with her gender. I don't think it has anything to do with. Uh, anything specific other than that maybe we just got a really, really, really bad first impression of her with that flashback. I do also wonder if it's, if she comes into the series later and she's sort of this name actress. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if that sort of wasn't appealing to some people because you have Dominic Monaghan, but he's there from the beginning and he's on board. He's a regular on the show, but then you kind of have like, okay, is ABC just bringing in this name actress to add more? So I can see some people sort of rolling their eyes at at the concept of her being on the show at all. And then you have that episode and it Mm -hmm. adds fuel that fire. This is just all me sort of speculating here, but Mm -hmm. I I can see that being the case as well. But from a pure character standpoint and everything else, I I do think this is a lot better because you're right. The thing that I kind of come away from that first flashback was there's no redemption story or, or there's there's very little into me that thinks that Anna Lucia has regret about what she did mm-hmm. and then we get the second one which I think rehabs a lot of her in, right it's where she is sorry about it she realizes that she needs to be better and she wants to be better which is right. always very endearing right she wants to be better before she even gets on the plane and then of course she comes to the lost island where redemption is a, a main theme is it yes just a few so let's get to our island action it's lots to unpack here. Oh my gosh, there is. I went ahead and just decided to take it in chronological order because uh, there's so many little scenes and stuff that it, it, I figured it'd be hard to parse out into A stories and B stories. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So we start with just, uh, we pick up right where the last episode is, leaving us off, where they find Michael, and Jack puts him over his shoulder unconscious, and they head back to the camp. So we just get a few seconds of new footage there. but And I think briefly, Jack seems more obsessed with still staying there and waiting for the others, but Kate's kind of like, hey, this is Michael. We need to get him back. But we come back to the hatch, and Anna Lucia is cutting up some food. Locke is asleep. So I guess they're now button-pushing pals while Jack's away. But she goes into the armory to bring Fenry some food, which I immediately thought was like, didn't they just talk last episode about not going in there while they don't have a gun? Yeah, I said the same thing. Like, you just talked about that. (laughs) That's why she wouldn't open the door for Locke. And um, anyway, so she goes in there with some food, and she starts talking to him. She starts trying to coax him into, into talking. He's still not speaking, but she talks about how she was a cop and she said the thing about, you know, killers is they always want to talk and so forth. So he mumbles really softly. And this is like, I mean, I'm not a genius police detective or anything, but to me, this would be kind of an obvious little fake thing, you know, fake out that he does. He mumbles. And then so as soon as she leans in to hear him, he grabs her by the throat and tries to choke her to death and gets pretty close too. I mean, this is like vicious, this scene. It's a tough watch. It's 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 vicious. Like he is going at it. And Michelle Rodriguez really sells this idea that she's about to die. Finally, at the last second, Locke peers from behind and smashes him over the head with one of his crutches uh, and knocks him unconscious. So then a scene later, we have Anna Lucia on the beach and she is looking at this in a mirror, the cut that she got. I guess when she got was getting thrown around by Fenry. She got a cut. So Libby, of course, sees it and asks about it. And she actually tells the truth. Libby sort of knows Anna Lucia and tells her not to do anything stupid because she probably has an idea of what Anna Lucia has in mind for this attempted attempt on her life, essentially. Back in the hatch, we, Locke is looking at the blast doors and then he goes in to see Fenry once again, walking right in with no, no supervision. And this time, I don't think there's anybody else there, is there? Huh, I guess you're right. So so Locke is literally alone with Fenry in the hatch. We asked Fenry why he didn't kill him while he was pinned under the blast door, which is something else that I thought was kind of keep knocking the episode here. But like the, the writing is a little bit off to me because that was something that they had already kind of gone over. The whole reason that he didn't kill him when he was pinned under the blast door was because at that point, Fenry thought that his story would check out. You know, they even said that in the show previously so like we already covered this but he's like why didn't you kill me now Fenry then uses that opening though to once again start playing mind games with Locke and he tells him oh because you're one of the good ones and you know Locke was asked what that means but Fenry says it doesn't really matter because he's about to be killed you know he'll either be killed by Locke's people like if they can't get Walt back then they'll come back and kill him because he's useless or if they actually do the trade, then Fenry's own people will kill him because the man in charge doesn't tolerate failure. And Fenry failed his mission, and then he circles back around to this emotional manipulation of Locke by saying that his mission, uh, when he was on the way, was actually that he was actually coming to the hatch to bring John Locke back, which is perfectly playing off of Locke's psyche, this whole idea that he's trying to find his destiny and that he's somehow special, you know, this thing that's been, he's been toyed with ever since, you know, he was, I guess that going all the way back to that scene where his mom told him he was a virgin birth, you know, it's like the same kind of theme with him of like the easy way to appeal to Locke or, or bring down his defenses is to make him feel special. 
Yeah, you're you know? right. You're special, Locke. So this is this, you know, just really blatant emotional manipulation. So we cut to a scene scene in uh, the jungle where Sawyer's gathering some mangoes and Ana Lucia comes up and uh, she asks him for a gun. So we know where this is going. Sawyer says that she should get one from Jack and he gets mopey about, about Jack being in the jungle with Kate and, and Anna Lucia sort of calls him on that. So he tells her to get lost. Then we have a quick scene where Hurley talks to Saeed about borrowing the radio that they had used a few episodes ago. But Saeed says it hasn't picked up anything but static since. Well, tell me, Kevin, what does is, what is he say about there's a say anything reference in there somewhere? He was talking about that he wanted to try to find music because remember the first time they find the music and he's like, oh, maybe it's a station from the future. Just kidding. Right, right, right. So he wants to find music again because he's trying to take Libby on like this romantic date. And he wants to pull the say anything thing and like in the scene where John Cusack pulls up outside the house and he holds up the speakers over his head as In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel's playing. Mm-hmm. He makes that as a reference to a romantic movie inside. He has no clue what he's right. Talking. He has no idea what, what he's talking about. Yeah, so he's trying to do nice something nice for Libby, and he has the idea in mind of a, a well, or Saeed helps him get the idea of a picnic. Basically recommends taking her to the beach where uh, he used to have his sex tent with Shannon, if you'll remember that. <laughs> I do. How can I forget so, the sex tent? So, as a matter of fact, Hurley, the sex tent should still be intact. <laughs> I was going to say, is anybody, <laughs> is anybody having sex in the sex tent these days? No, so but he just recommends taking her to that secluded beach. You know what Lost was missing was a scene where somebody walked in on Saeed masturbating in the sex tent. That would have been a problem. <laughs> like, like, just like the crying kind of, you know. Um, yeah, that's terrible because it was a tragic loss, but uh, but still funny. Yes. They get back to the hatch with Michael and Jack's treating him, and Locke asks kind of what happened in the jungle, what happened with this whole idea of a trade. And I think that Locke has this idea in his head that like the others gave them Michael, but Jack is saying, no, it's just a coincidence or that, that Michael just heard us shouting. That's why he came our way. The others didn't give anybody back. And I think there's also still a sense of frustration here with Locke that he can't go out on these missions right now because his legs out of commission. So that's what's going on in the hatch. Sawyer is still walking around in the jungle and he hears the noise and turns out to be Anna Lucia. He sort of threatens He's like, I got a gun. But Analysia is still on his case, and he thinks that she's basically following him to find out where he keeps his guns. Then she tries to attack him to get the gun, but he dodges. They scuffle a little bit, and uh, he pins her to the ground. And so then she immediately changes tactics and uh, like goes for his, like a face-sucking session. So they have frantic jungle sex, which is kind of like, ooh, because... A, it's on the dirty jungle floor, and B, don't we know something about Sawyer's medical history that might that make that problematic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's not think about that. <laughs> so, but yeah, that happens. It, the camera even, I think, pans over to like the gun over on the side or something like that. So we kind of get an idea what's going on here. But Anna Lucia afterwards says that it, while they're redressing, and I think I like this, there's a, sh- a cut to a shot of, like she's putting her shirt back on, she turns around, and Sawyer's just sitting there in like this superposed Fabio look. And I'm like, I don't know if that's for Anna Lucia or the viewers or what's going on there, but it was like this very posed, like like almost like there should be an art class around him drawing him, you know? It's for everyone, Ben. It's for everyone's benefit. Okay. So, but she says, Yeah, if you tell anybody about this, I'll kill you. <laughs> 
So obviously not her proudest moment, but as we'll find out later, she was successful in her goal. Hurley's packing food for the picnic, and actually this is up at this kitchen that has now been established on the beach camp that we saw last episode. Uh, Libby finds him, and he kind of confesses what he was planning, which she says, you know, oh, that's so sweet. It's one of those appreciate the effort things. And uh, she agrees to go, but Hurley still wants to keep the location a surprise. Well, he, he has to fess up because she sees him taking all these snacks. In the previous episode, he says he's on a strict fish and water diet. Oh, right. And so yeah. he's, he's taking snacks and he's like, this isn't what it looks like. Right. That's his first thing is like, no, I swear I'm not just, you know, binge eating or whatever. And, and there's really no other explanation than what's really going on. It's true. So. That's true. He is put into a corner there. Ana Lucia goes back to the hatch. Jack's down there now, and this is another one of these extremely frustrating moments to me. Locke lies about how she hurt her head, because Jack, once again, like everybody else, has noticed that she's got this injury on her head. Locke's like, oh, she slipped, it fell, and something. I can't even remember what he says, but essentially what he says is complete bullshit. Why, Kevin? Why, why would they not share this? I guess maybe he feels like Jack might go and kill him or something. I don't know. See, I, I don't, I can't buy that. I, I understand why you're saying it, but I can't believe that Locke would believe that. The only thing that I can think of that keeps it from just being flat out bad writing, like a, just a, a technique to keep things confused so that there's more drama later, is if Locke is still doing this sort of power play thing and that he's so desperate to sort of one-up Jack in the, the power play that he just keeps things to himself that really everybody should know. But I also wonder if Locke still wants to to keep he, – he thinks Jack is going to kill him if he finds out the truth, and he wants to keep Henry around to try to figure out if he really did touch the button or not still. Yeah, maybe. It's still really frustrating, but, I mean, the whole situation is is like if she hadn't gone in there in the first place, which in the very last episode she said you shouldn't do. <laughs> but anyway, it is what it is. Michael wakes up at that point and everybody's really, you know, happy to see him and everything. And then he talks in some pretty good detail about what has happened to him in this, in his absence. He tells a pretty uh, significantly detailed story. Uh, essentially he followed the beach around the Island and then went inland and he saw one of the others. So like uh, just somebody dressed in like dirty clothes and, followed that person over to their camp where he says that they live in tents and teepees and that they're all, they all like, they don't have shoes. They have raggedy clothes. They eat fish. They're like worse off than the, than the plane crash survivors. So he painted a very bleak picture of, of these, the others. He said he counted 22 of them, but he didn't see Walt, but he said that he's, that they have a hatch basically what he described was that there's another a door that goes into a you know a rock wall and so what else could it be and that they had people guarding it all the time and so he says that must be where the kids are we can totally take these people let's you know get a group and go back and jack's on board with this but immediately we already know by the time he's done talking before anything else happens we know that there are several things that are suspicious about this story right I mean, there's little things and there's big things because we already have the situation where we know that Kate has said that she found like these costumes. So if they're wearing their costumes around, like maybe, but it seems like that'd be kind of weird when we, we already know we've seen them in normal clothing and like clean shaved and so forth. So this whole story doesn't add up to the audience, but, you know, Jack is buying it. 
Yeah, I thought the whole thing about everyone being older also didn't fly. Yeah. So this story is suspicious from the get-go. And Jack wants to go. The next thing they have to do is they have to go get the guns back from Sawyer. But Jack admits to Locke at that point that Locke was right about Fenry and that you know, all the way back in the beginning when they first got the guy and Saeed was basically torturing him to get information from him that he should have just let that happen because obviously look where we are. The guy, he ended up being one of the others and we're in the situation we're in now. And Locke says, well, you know, next time I'd like you to just include me in the planning process or the next big thing that happens. And he says, as a matter of fact, I get the impression that you're doing something right now. And he said, yeah, we're going to get the guns from Sawyer. They take Kate. So Locke goes and, and Kate goes. They get ready to, I guess, sort of gear up for their raid on the others. Now, we cut back to Hurley in the middle here, and he is with Libby in the jungle, and they are pretty much lost. <laughs> Libby kind of recognizes the same tree a few different times, and uh, they emerge from the jungle, and Hurley thinks they're on the, um, the secluded sex tent beach, but it's actually just their own beach, and they just look over and see Jin just cleaning a fish. So, you know, again, with the sort of it's the thought that counts thing with uh, with Hurley and Libby still kind of like, well, yeah, let's do this. But uh, did you bring any drinks? Well, no. Did you bring any blankets? No. So Hurley's not really racking up a lot of points here with the preparedness for a picnic. So she says, well, I'll go get blankets and you go get I guess they had box wine or something that Rose and Bernard had. You know, last episode, Kevin, I had brought up the question of whether Libby does remember Hurley and just doesn't want him to remember how he knows her. And I think this pretty concretely answers it in this scene because he says, Oh, maybe if I have enough wine, I'll remember where I know you. And she says like really nervously, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it's pretty clear now that she does not want him to remember. Would you agree? Yes, I would. And I think her behavior here kind of gives that away, as you had said. Yeah. Like la- in the last episode, I think it was still kind of a, a toss up. But this she she at this point, she knows how they know each other and does not want him to remember. Before so, yeah. you leave it, though, mm. when she goes to walk away and get the blankets, much like Hurley gave Jin a thumbs up the night after he and son got going on. Jin looks at him and gives Hurley a thumbs he gives up. Gives him a big thumbs up. Love yeah. that. Love to go. Yeah. Love that. Hurley's uh, getting pretty excited about uh, the the way things are going here. So, um, well, I just I just love that that very small callback. It, oh yeah, totally. If you blink, you miss it. If you don't yeah. pay that much attention, you miss it. But it's still fun. But when you do pay attention, it's so funny. Yeah, definitely. All right, so Jack, Kate, and Locke go up to Sawyer. He's uh, kind of being a jerk about the guns and. Uh, Jack picks up the manuscript. This is the same manuscript that we've seen crop up once before that we've already talked about, which is uh, Bad Twin, which is actually a real life novel that was released in conjunction with Lost. But Sawyer in the in the Lost universe, Sawyer's reading the only copy because it's a manuscript that hasn't been published yet. And uh, Jack proceeds to pick up part of it and throw it in the fire to get his attention. So that pisses Sawyer off pretty fast. And he tries to draw his own gun on Jack. Jack draws a gun on him. He tries to draw his own gun, but then he realizes that Anna Lucia stole it during their jungle sex. So that's just one more reason not to have like dirty jungle sex. And so we come back to, you know, just the timing works out perfectly because we come back to see Anna Lucia taking the gun into the armory. At this point, we know that she's going to try and kill Fenry. She opens the armory door. She gives him a knife to cut himself loose. 
I guess maybe the idea is that she's going to make it look like he was killed while trying to escape. But then Fenry talks about Goodwin. Of course, we know Goodwin was the mole in the tail section group and says that, uh, you know, oh, oh, Goodwin kept trying to convince us about you, that you were misunderstood and that you were worthy, but he was wrong and it cost him his life. And Annalucia says, well, you know, he would have killed me. And Fenry says, would he have? And I mean, I guess there's no direct evidence of that, but they did, you know, kidnap people and everything. So Anna's getting ready to fire the, Anna Lucia's getting ready to fire the gun here. And I think it cuts to a commercial break. And when we come back, she's sitting on the couch. And this is, I guess, the defining character development moment that I wanted to circle back around to from earlier, because this is where we see her go from somebody who murdered a man when she was attacked and she you know, lost the baby that she was pregnant with to her every intent up to this point was to kill Fenry as retribution for almost choking her to death. But then she found that she couldn't do it. So this, this is Anna Lucia's arc is that she's now at the point where she's, she's no longer capable of doing that kind of, of, of a revenge killing like that. Michael comes in, she tells him all about the situation. He's just, you know, learning things since he's just been back for a little bit, tells him about how they've got one of the others in there, but that she couldn't kill him. And he offers to do it instead. He gets really heated about it. And he says, you know, they're animals. I've seen the way that they live. I will kill them because that's what they would do to us. She gives him the gun and gives him the armory combination. And he says, I'm sorry, and turns and shoots her right in the gut. And there's just dead silence. And then we hear Libby say, Michael, and he's surprised. So he flips around and pulls off two more rounds without meaning to, hits her square in the gut. And you see this look on his face of that obviously it was completely unintentional. He's uh, horrified with what he just did, but he manages to pull himself together long enough to go over to the armory door and put in the combination that Ana Lucia had just given him and opens the door. And Fenry, who of course has heard all the gunshots outside, just looks at him, stands up. Michael just stares right back at Fenry and then points the gun at his own shoulder and fires. And we cut to black, and that's the end of the episode. This has got to be one of the most shocking endings of a lost episode, period. Yeah. It's hard. It, it, it's funny to because when you think about the bigger context of the show, and of course, as as you and I are people who have seen the entire series and and know like the the scope of everything that that happens over the course of the show that a particular scene like this would be so shocking but i will never forget how how shocking this was when i saw it like i was spoiled for the idea that michael killed two people but i was not ready for how it was going to happen right i mean it, it's a big deal that he shoots on Lucia, of course, but then the killing of Libby is really shocking because right. it comes right. so soon after he just shot her and you don't even realize she's there, but she has the blankets and her hands to go back to, to Hurley. And it, so yeah. that makes it even more heartbreaking because you, we all love Hurley. We're so happy that he has this relationship bonding. And then now Michael ends up yeah. killing her by accident. We like Hurley. We like Libby. And you know, they were just about to sort of have their Island romance. 
And then to add insult to injury, you're looking at it later and you're like, oh, two for the road. Yeah, I see what they did there. Right. I thought the same thing because you're like, oh, two for the road. That's all about Christian and Ana Lucia having their fun little, you know, tryst or whatever it is in Australia. Then you get to the end of the episode and you realize, nope, it's two deaths. Double meaning. So you wanted to talk about this a little bit, and I think it's it's good because there's a lot of real life lost lore to dive in here with these two deaths. Right. When these two characters were killed, there were immediately rumors because both Michelle Rodriguez and Cynthia Watros, who is the actress that plays Libby, had been arrested and charged with DUI violations in Hawaii while the show was on the air. And so the rumors immediately circulated that they killed these two characters off because the actors got the DUIs. The producers of the show have insisted up and down and always possible that that is not the case. You're free to believe whatever you want to believe, but basically the explanation is that the plan was for Ana Lucia to only have a one-season story arc, and that the decision to kill Libby came from the fact that Ana Lucia became a much more hated character than they expected her to be, and so that they felt that the death would not have much resonance with the audience. They actually had to kill a character that was liked in order for the audience to feel the full brunt of Michael's betrayal. That's the story that I choose to accept and not this stuff about the DUIs. What do you have anything to add to that whole thing or have you read anything different? No, that's, that's exactly what I heard. The one thing I will say though, and, and I warned about this when we watched the collision, the first Ana Lucia flashback mm-hmm. was that there was a spoiler in the on location in the, in the season two episodes where Damon Lindelof says in there that, we only had her for a season. So mm. I were watching this being like, okay, well, I'm glad I know she dies because otherwise this is kind of a spoiler. Right. And I feel like a lot of that stuff was filmed while they were making the show itself. So I feel like Damon Lindelof was saying that knowing what he knew then, like when they originally got her up, they knew it was yeah. a one season deal. And to me, that makes all the sense in the world because the biggest thing I think for Michelle Rodriguez then and kind of still now is the Fast and Furious franchise. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, the Fast and the Furious movie that came out around 06 or whatever, which would have filmed the same time as as this season of Lost was, was the Tokyo Drift one, in which I don't think she appears at all. Mm-hmm. There's enough stuff that lines up where it would work out for her to do just the one season of Lost, where I think the DUI thing just is a, is a happy accident. Now, you know, I've also read that Cynthia Watros was a little sad about Libby getting killed off so soon. So maybe that was a decision she didn't know was coming. Maybe the DUI had some play in that one. Although I do think that there is a lot of justification in killing her for that sympathy from, from the reasons we've talked about in past episodes, Donna Lucia, how it wouldn't have the resonance that it, that they intended it to. But also I read that, the producers helped her get a pilot for a show on CBS that huh. ended up not getting picked up by the network, but it was almost like a make good for killing her off. So okay. Okay. So long story short, I don't believe it at all about Michelle Rodriguez, Cynthia Watchers. I could situation. see it maybe being possible, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think that's just people looking into it more than there is. So I've got a quote here from a TV guide interview. If you don't mind me reading it real quick, not at all. So the question straight up, why did you kill off Libby <laughs> Carlton Cuse? 
We felt like we had run out of story for her. It happens. While we did develop the romance with her and Hurley, we didn't see enough in the way of avenues for where to go with that character. And we were starting to think about what sort of stories we were going to be telling for the characters in season three. And we just didn't have enough for Libby that we were too excited about. That was on the one side. On the other side, we thought, well, shooting Anna Lucia is going to be dramatic, but what will really make it incredible for the audience is that it'll be completely surprising if we shoot Libby too. And it would be enhanced by the fact that Anna Lucia is not particularly a sympathetic character. But if we added Michael shooting Libby also, who's a very sympathetic character, that would really ratchet up the emotional stakes of the rest of the season. So yeah, that's pretty much what I had said before. I just found that now while we were talking. So there you go. So rumor mill debunked. They did not get killed off on the show because of their DUIs. Probably to anybody watching the show now for the first time, you know, it wouldn't even occur to you. But uh, that was a big rumor that was going around. It almost became a joke of like, oh, yeah, if you see a, you know, a, a lost actor get a DUI, get ready. Their character's going to die. And no, that is not the case. Also interesting to note, this episode got nominated for an award. It got nominated for the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Episodic Drama at the February 2007 ceremony. Really? And it was for Elizabeth Sarnoff and Christina M. Kim, the writers of this particular episode. See, now I feel bad for saying the bad writing with the whole thing of the, the like everybody just lying to each other. I don't well, know. Well, you know, it's it's one little part of the story, but I think the the shock ending and the strength of um, some of the other stories going on here, I, yeah. I, I can see why this episode was the one that. Yeah consideration the other thing i guess that uh, i would mention too since we are i mean this is an episode where we have two main characters we lose i think it's an opportunity to look back at the character arcs we talked about Anna lucia already i talked a little bit about how i felt like she's kind of she kind of got treated unfairly by a lot of the fan base although it wasn't entirely their fault because i think of the way you know she was introduced and Kevin, I think you brought up a really good point that I hadn't even considered, which was this whole idea of like bringing sort of a, a, a bigger name movie star onto the show and people having this fear that she was going to overshadow the other characters. Right. And it, then it didn't help the way that her episode was written. Yeah, collision was just awful. But overall, I guess I would say on the island, I felt like she added a pretty interesting dynamic. She sort of became part of what we think of as the A-team, which are sort of the, like the, the people that plan most of the missions and do sort of the, the more like action or, or adventure uh, parts of the episodes. I, I liked the dynamic that she brought to that and that she even introduced a little bit of romantic tension with Jack and sort of kept things interesting in, in the sense that we didn't have to dwell exclusively on the love triangle, which just bores me to no end. Well, and it's also interesting that in this episode, they have her you know, jungle sex, jungle sex with Sawyer, because now Sawyer's going to have a bone to pick with Michael about her getting killed off or he may mm. beforehand not have not have cared so much, especially because those two have never really had the best relationship either. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're giving Sawyer a lot of credit in the fact that, you know, it was basically a romp in the hay for him, but maybe he will. Right, but I, I think they wanted something more concrete with emotional support than they did with Jack and her before this killed off because now then you're going to have Hurley and Sawyer both pissed yeah, off. That's what's going on here. That's, that's just me again kind of no, I, That's a good observation. Uh, and then I think for Libby, well, I think the thing that surprises the surprised people most about this death was that, you know, it's funny what, what was said in this interview about that they ran out of story for her and there were a lot of people who were thinking, but wait a minute, we just had this big revelation like two episodes ago that she was in the same mental hospital as Hurley. 
So what's up with that? And of course, we'll see where they go with that. But that was probably another thing that a lot of people probably figured she was safe, you know, like because we have not told her story yet. Whereas whereas with Anna Lucia, with this being her episode, I mean, it is as is at this point in the series, it's pretty obvious to anybody that it's starting to become a tradition where if a character is going to die, their their last episode is like a centric episode for them. I guess, well, I guess Do No Harm wasn't a Boone-centric episode, but Shannon, you know, Shannon had the uh, her centric episode in the episode she died, and now we've got Anna Lucia having a centric episode when she dies. You know, her character arc seems to have come full circle, but Cynthia Watros, or the, the character of Libby, I felt like there was more potential with that character, but I guess the writers didn't see it. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think there's so much more you could have done with her and, and all that stuff, which I think is why a lot of people didn't buy that it wasn't the DUI mm-hmm. that got her got her fired. I mean, it, yeah. So the, to me, the logical explanation is that they needed to up the stakes of what Michael did because the audience hated Anna Lucia that much. And that actually leads me to mention another thing, which is um, sort of, a, I guess, a, a little bit of an uncomfortable part of the history of the show. But Harold Perrineau, who plays Michael... He absolutely hated that they wrote for him killing these two characters. There are interviews where he talks about how angry it made him that they wrote him that way. And I think it was it had a lot to do with the fact that he took very seriously the fact that he was playing like, you know, a black male character on a show who's in the first season, his primary role was being a father. And there's so many negative stereotypes about uh, about black men and fatherhood. There's less representation of like positive, you know, examples of that on television. And so he took that role very seriously. And then to have this character take that turn was something he was very frustrated by. You will see that uh, in particular, if you go look at any of the old interviews where Jimmy Kimmel interviews the lost cast members. He always jokingly talks about like thanking Michael for killing Anna Lucia and Harold Perrineau will have none of it. Like he genuinely does not appreciate the joke when, when people joke about that, because there are some people that still make the joke like, Oh, thank you for killing off Anna Lucia. He is not, he, he was not happy with that decision. Uh, that's, that's not surprising. And I completely understand where he comes from. But I do think that it's so surprising in the show, not just because they're both killed, but that who kills them. If Henry Gale killed them, it would have been surprising, but it wouldn't have been the same effect that if Michael Sure. Had. Yeah, for the sake of pure twist, suspense, shock value, whatever, it's perfect. Like you could not have had a more shocking twist than that on this episode or just in this in this sort of section of the show. And then, of course, anybody who's listening to this who's, who has not watched the series yet will get a lot more information about what led to this. So it works really well from a dramatic standpoint, but I completely see the actor's perspective, too, of like, well, okay, so we had to take, you know, the one of the only couple of black characters on the show and make him like this betraying murderer. Like, I can understand the frustration with that. Those are just some observations, some behind the scenes things of what was going on during that time frame when these characters exited the show. I do wish that we had gotten a little more time with Libby. And I also felt like Anna Lucia was a character that we could have gotten more from too. But I understand that she was written as a one year character. So I guess at least they got to do what they had intended to do with her character. Okay, so for superlatives, 
What do you have for your quote of the episode? <laughs> this is a weird one, and I understand it's a weird one. Okay. But it's when Hurley it goes to Saeed to ask him for the radio. His his way to start conversation from Saeed is to just say, nice hold, dude. <laughs> and, it, and it reminds me, of, there's something he says to Jack about like, oh, uh, you know, Bernard's white didn't see that coming. And Jack's just like, what do you want, Hurley? Saeed does, this, <laughs> Saeed does the same thing. He's just like, may I help you, Hurley? <laughs> yeah, may I help you? And it's just nice hole, dude. I think um, if I'm not mistaken, I think that one of the things that has never been resolved is what the heck that hole was for. I feel like people asked about it for quite a while afterwards. Because it's kind of like when you see Echo chopping down trees or marking them with X's. Uh, you know, or or lock, you know, making something that turns out to be a cradle. You eventually learn what it's for, but I don't think we ever see anything more from the hole. So that's a good one. Mine's also a weird one. I, I this is cheating, I know, because it's not a quote. But uh, Jin giving Hurley the thumbs up. <laughs> I'm stretching the definition to be any form of communication from one person to another, and I freaking love that. Uh, so that was mine, especially with a character who can't speak English. I think I can give that a pass. I appreciate that. Moments of the episode, again, with these ones where they have like these are sort of top five dramatic twists in the whole series. It's sort of hard to say that anything other than that last scene was not your the moment of the episode. But did you have any other moments maybe that stood out? To I you? didn't. I, I feel bad because you're, you're right. When there's some obvious ones, I feel it's always good to point out some other good. Yeah, it too, gives but... us an opportunity to point out some other stuff. So what, what did you get? Well, that I had the obvious ending with Michael killing on Lucy and Libby. But yeah, I, I unfortunately didn't, didn't pick out any other good scenes. Although I guess you could say the whole scene with uh, your quote counting as a scene. Too, <laughs> but I mentioned my left for that already. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I also just put the the scene where when when Michael first wakes up and he's given everybody this whole download on on everything he's seen and observed about the others, because I think it just it starts the dramatic tension of the episode in a really good way because you know off the bat that he's not being truthful about this stuff because of other things we've seen already. You know, we've seen the flashbacks in maternity leave where we know they don't walk around in tattered stuff, you know, or, or, or you know, if, if he's seeing any of that stuff, it's like completely a front or something. Like basically the information doesn't jive with other things we've already observed. So it creates this dramatic tension, uh, which of course then explodes in the last scene. Uh, we already know something's up before we even get to that point. So I really like the subtlety of that scene. I thought it was a, a pretty good way to start to ratchet things up. For asshole idiot, I put Anna Lucia for going to see Fenry alone and unarmed, which I've already beaten to death. So what do you have? Well, I put Michael for the obvious reasons, <laughs> um, but he, I also wrote Michael for now. And I feel like in the moment, it's obvious to pin him as an asshole idiot, but I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and see why he's lying about the others, what the reason for killing Anna Lucia was. Obviously, uh, uh, Libby was an accident. Yeah. Uh, but what what's going on in this guy's head? Yeah. So from on the surface and what we know here, he gets the asshole of, of the idiot. But I'm putting a little uh, ellipsis on that for now. We got a few numbers here. The only one that I saw during the episode is actually one of the more famous ones. I think probably second most famous sighting of the numbers. The, the soccer team of girls in the airport in season one is that the police cars 
in the establishing shot of the police station and Anna Lucia's flashback are all the different numbers of their squad cars. So they have big, big painted numbers on the tops of their cars, 15, 16, 42, etc. The only other one that I found was that, well, no, I didn't actually, I didn't find this one. This is the one that I found on Lostpedia, which is that he said there were 22 others. Michael said he's counted 22 of them. And so if you add Fenry to that, you get 23, which I know is cheating on a little of my no math thing, but I thought that if they said there were 22, that was probably on purpose. Yeah, definitely. You did miss a couple. Well, one that's not obvious that also was on Lostpedia was that Michael shot the gun four times. He shot okay. it once at Ana Lucia, twice at Libya, and then once at Fenry. Well, once um, at his own shoulder. Right. So then when Christian is hammered and goes to Ana Lucia's house, it's four in the morning. And then he also makes a line about, you know, we, we spent four days of drinking and doing nothing. Or one oh, of Oh, yeah. Things. Okay. So, uh, yeah, there's two inches of four in, in that. And Oh, yeah, uh, I even said that when I did the recap and I, I missed it. <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. Get it together. So there you go. We have – we still have nicknames to do. They got two – he calls Ana Lucia Muchacha at one point. And then I guess this counts as a nickname. He called Locke Brutus. He also called Ana Lucia Lucy. Mm-hmm. Okay. That that's much. kind of a, va- a variation of her name. Right. I liked Anna Lulu personally. I think that was, that <laughs> yeah, was my favorite, Anna Lulu. For music, we get Walking After Midnight, which I believe has already been played once before on the show. In a Kate episode. Yeah, and that's interesting because usually Patsy Cline music is paired up with Kate, and this didn't have anything to do with her. So it was just on the radio while – uh while Christian Shepard and um, Anna Lucia were driving around. And then there was another song that was played on the radio as well called The Hard Way, which is a country song by Casey Chambers. That uh, one for you to add to your unofficial soundtrack if you're keeping track. And then Walking After Midnight, you probably already have. That's it for music. There's no tracks from this episode on the season two soundtrack. And then for books, the only thing kind of related to that would be bad twin and kevin you said you were going to try to track down a copy of that is that right i'll see what i can do i'll I'll see if it's at my local used bookstore and if it's there i'll probably pick it up if it's for a decent price but i'm not going to do too too much looking into it (laughs) if it's there it's there if it's not that's the end of that journey yeah i'd just be curious to see how easy it is to get a copy of it so cool well let us know how that goes my hope is that there was a at least one person who was angry enough with the lost finale that they sold all their lost stuff that's how lost stuff becomes valuable. All the uh, all the people who are disappointed with the ending just burned it. All right. Well, I think that's all I've got for that episode. Anything else that you wanted to throw in there for observations or anything? No, I mean this is a lot to digest in in these episodes, especially mm-hmm. two for the row. Losing two characters is huge, especially so close to each other. Uh, so now we only have a two of our principal. Taylor's still around, Mr. Echo and Bernard as Cynthia's still missing. And mm-hmm. yeah, we'll we'll see where this all leads. But yeah, we're we're on the fast track to the finale of season two, just a couple more episodes. Yeah. And you always get that sense too, like when things start to really ramp up towards the finale, like do you just feel the momentum of the show picking up and and the the and craziness getting even crazier, which we definitely felt with uh, these episodes, I think. Yeah, very much so. And you can let us know what you thought of these episodes over on our Twitter account at Lost Pod, where we post every new episode when it comes out on Mondays and all of them are archived at EnterTheRealWorld.com. That is R-E-E-L, like a film reel. 
can also have correspondence with us on there. But if you have correspondence that is longer than 280 characters or you do not care for Twitter, email us at lostpodquestions at gmail.com and let us know if there's anything else you want from our lost Twitter or anything else we can post there. It's We don't post too much because we are really trying to, to avoid spoilers and things, but maybe some fun things here and there when it comes up. But and you can follow me on Twitter at K413. Ben, what do you have? All right. Well, you can follow me through the comic book that I co-write with my uh, partner, Marjorie. We have a comic on Comixology you can download for 99 cents for 70 pages. It's called Neopolitine, and that's spelled N-E-O-P-O-L-A-T-I-N-E. You can just go to neopolitine.com to download it. Uh, We're also on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the name of Neopolitine. So please check it out. Yes, indeed. And we're just a couple episodes of this podcast away from the finale. So tune in next week for the penultimate episode covering season two of Lost here on the broadcast app. See you then.